You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Well, here we are with episode number 13 of Notes from Norwich, our devotional dive into the revelations of divine love by Dame Julian of Norwich. And the three of us are nowhere near as saintly as Dame Julian, but we have a thing or two to say, and we're certainly learning about well, all kinds of stuff from her. My name's Chris. I'm one of the three hosts on this podcast, and I'm here with Marguerite and Jan. How are you, too? Doing well. How are you? Me? I'm good. So little you. <laughs> <laughs> We're uh, recording this um, here in, in uh, uh, remotely and distributed here in, in both Minnesota and Wisconsin. We're dodging storms in the upper Midwest. So if uh, there's any rumbling of thunder in the background of this podcast, it's uh, just extra sound effects. You get what you pay for. Uh, it's all part of the part of the motif. Today we're talking about uh, chapters 29 and 30 and 31. Uh, ideally, we'll see. We'll see where we get to. So where do we leap in? Where do we where do we begin with chapter twenty nine? I think the the thing that strikes me right off the bat is so we've had this grand um, unveiling that we talked about last week about sin and how it uh, does not lead to blame, and then she she talks about like so, okay, in this showing, I remained watching generally sorrowful and mourning. Um, and so this, this great comfort that Christ has given her hasn't, hasn't dealt with all that's troubling her. Um, and that's the lead in to these chapters. And what's still troubling her is that, that how can it be well, considering all the damage that is caused by sin? Like she, she's, she's stuck on how it can possibly be well. Yeah. Given God. Yeah, God has just shown her that despite the inevitability of sin, it's all going to work out okay in the end. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think you know, for for Julian, and I'm sure for the three of us, like you can't just ignore sin, right? And sin sucks; it has its mm-hmm. consequences. It definitely takes its toll. And I, so I wonder if Julian is just saying, like, you can't just ask me to ignore. Mm-hmm. The evidence of my own life, my own eyes, the world around me, 14th century Norwich, uh, 2020 America. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of sin and a lot of, you know, the consequences of sin. You can't just kind of blithely brush them under the rug. Mm-hmm. So it's a very real tension for Julian as as well as for us. So what do we do with this? I think first, like to to acknowledge that it is a real tension. Um, that I think we can we can read this and say, well, okay, this is just a, a rhetorical device for her to unpack this idea more and like deal with it more theologically. But I I think we like for ourselves for our own good, we need to honor like this is. This is real consternation. Um, 
she she's wanting to be put at ease she says um this this is a real question and it is understandable to to ask god why you know my parish is going through job as a books as a bible study and we started this um because of covid-19 and quarantine and this struggling with suffering and this wrestling with at, like why god why um and i think something that i've gleaned from going through that with our parishioners is how important it is to honor that struggle um to honor that that is a difficulty a a complicated question to face that needs to be reckoned with well i'm always impressed with the fact that she is that she has the the courage to continue asking and wanting more information and wanting more insight into into this and and lots of other kinds of things too in the revelations that she just doesn't sit back and let god tell her things that she you know that she pursues things and that she tries to um make sense of it like in in 29 here where where she talks about how Adam's sin was the worst sin ever in the world, that that was like, that was the big one. Nothing compares to it. And I mean, I can understand that from the standpoint of original sin, but eating a forbidden fruit doesn't seem right up there with genocide or, you know, I mean, but anyway, and then, um, what God tells her is that the reparation, meaning Christ's passion, outweighs the sin of Adam and in consequence all the other sins that ever that ever might exist. So that the balance is in favor of the good already. Not we're not waiting for more to happen to balance things out, to make to make things right again. We aren't um, we aren't hoping that future sins don't happen to disturb that balance because that balance has been corrected for all time. And she 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 accepts that a hundred percent and I, and I I also accept that a hundred percent I have to say. Um, but it's it's encouraging to me this message that she gives that basically everything is up to God and our reliance on God is the key thing. So, so um, what uh, I want to jump off uh, something that you said, Marguerite, about about the. The fact that the Lord shows to Julian that Adam's sin was the the worst, the most harm that had ever been done. And you said that that felt kind of like it's eating fruit compared to genocide. So why do, why do we think that God 
says that this is the worst sin? Is it just because it's the first sin and it kicks off the whole sorry chain? Or is it the worst sin because because of something else? I don't know. Maybe is it is it because Adam and Eve were they really had no excuse for it. Like they had just received, they were in perfection in Eden and they were told directly by God, don't do this one thing while the rest of us continue to sin, but maybe we have extenuating circumstances and excuses and all that because we're born into this uh, sinful world. And so we can't help but be infected by it. I mean, it's, it's sin is the original pandemic. You know, and it infects us all and it distorts and warps us. But Adam and Eve didn't really have an excuse. Is that why? I think so. I mean, I think it, it, both that, both that it had this, it is the origin point that kind of has led to this cascade of sin, but um, also that it is the quintessence of sin. It is to, to, to be standing in perfection and to cast that aside. That is, that is the, the purest instance of sin. I, I don't know that I would necessarily like frame it in terms of like excuses, but, but like you said, there, there was nothing... There was no sin upstream that was kind of influencing their path. Um, in Adam's sin, we see the true nature of sin most clearly. Um, it is it is the it is sin standing bald and naked before our eyes, and I think that is. That that is the the essence of sin, and it is that moment of sin that sets off this cascade. That that's why it's the most harm, um, both because it is the origin point, and also because it is the most bold faced sin, because it, it takes a state of perfection with no nothing upstream and it casts it aside. That's, that's a wonderful way of phrasing it. It's a good way of, of looking at it. I appreciate that very much from both of you. Makes a lot of sense. Now in the Roman Catholic world, they have this ranking system that I don't understand entirely, but I've heard of it. And between venial sins and mortal sins, this kind of, categorization into lesser and greater sins, which kind of makes sense to me on one level. I mean, in secular law, we have misdemeanors and we have felonies, right? We have things that are going to get me a $10 parking ticket, and then we have things that are going to land me in jail for life or worse. Um, so I guess this makes sense that the, you know that there's a proportionate scaling of infractions or of wounding. But then other friends of mine with a different theological perspective say that there's no such thing as a ranking of sin. All sin is equal in its severity because any sin is separation from God. 
And so you can't say that there's one that's worse than the other because every one of them is pulling you in the wrong direction. So it doesn't really matter whether it's, you know, quote, big or small, unquote, that all sin is rupture. Um, and I don't know what, I mean, I, and I can, I can be argued into either, you know, because certainly I want my sins to be proportional in scale because then I can convince myself that the sins that I do aren't really that big a deal because I'm not getting involved in genocide and I'm not stabbing people, but I am sinning. So maybe if I buy into this like ranking system of minor and greater sins, all that I'm really doing is justifying to myself that I'm not really that bad. So I don't really need to change those other people do who are doing worse stuff. So is that self-justification? What do you think? Is it, do we rank sins or is all sin equally, equally bad? I was talking about this with, um, some friends in a group chat earlier, like a couple days ago. Um, and it actually came up because we were talking about types of abs- absolution. It was a liturgical conversation that then got into this concept of ra- ranking sins. Um, and I think where I land, um, I don't find the mortal venial distinction very helpful. Um, because it, it tries to come up with criteria and a sorting system, um, that I think it's, I, I understand the thinking behind it, but I think coming up with a list of criteria that then you tick a certain number of boxes and a sin is mortal, that's it's an unnecessarily schematic way of thinking about it. But I think there is merit in thinking about different sins as having different gravity. Um, That all sin has the character of sin. All sin is separation from God, but different sins have different temporal effects. They are different. They, they differ in how pervasively they affect our souls. Um, so I think the Eastern Orthodox, not to be like an Eastern Orthodox fanboy or anything, but um, I think that Orthodox theology grasps this idea of varying degrees of sin without trying to sort them into categories that they're all sin is sin. Like it's not, it's not that any sin is insignificant. Um, and yet, and I think, I think most people who buy into this kind of idea of gradients of sin cite it's one of the, one of the general epistles. I think it might be James that talks about, which actually might be why Lutherans aren't super into it. Um, it, it talks about, um, I mean, they, they ground this idea of like sin that leads to death versus other sins. There, there is, I think, scriptural warrant in talking about different sins having different effects 
Um, and I, the, the takeaway that I think we should have from different sins having different weights is um, that So it so sin 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 as sin damages our relationship with God and sin damages our relationships with ourselves and one another and I think the the different gravities of sin that shows up most clearly in the way sin damages our relationship with ourselves and with others um and I think that is the that is where the 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 pastoral thrust of this grave sin versus less grave sin should be like it, it should it should turn our attention to the the way that sin affects the church as christ's body that there there are and and i think this is part of what's behind this concept of excommunication is that there are, there are sins that so gravely harm the body that communion is broken, that, 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 that relationship is damaged even to the point of being cut off and then needs to be healed. I don't know that there is a great difference between a sin like that and lying to somebody um, when it comes to our relationship with God, I think it all, it all damages our relationship with God, but there are differences in how different sins impact us and the body of Christ. So I, I think I'm, I guess I, TLDR, I'm more agnostic on whether there are differences in kind of sin as it pertains to our relationship with God, this vertical relationship. But I think there's a lot of importance in having kind of a nuanced, gradiated understanding of sin when it comes to our relationships with one another. I've never heard anyone say TLDR out loud like that. I see it all the time on Reddit, of course. For those of you who are listening who are under, uh, who are over the age of 40, TLDR is too long, didn't read. Um, it's a way of saying, I've gone on too long already. Here's, here's my summary. I've never heard anyone say it out loud like that. That cracked me up. TLDR. <laughs> Marguerite, what do you think of this ranking of sin idea? Well, I I liked what Jayan said about the pastoral aspect of it. I think if someone comes to you, um, a pastor, a rector, a vicar, with troubles, that that being able to help that person see where their sin is leading, or where their sin has led them, or where it might lead them, or where yeah, where it might lead them is helpful. Um, certainly, certainly damage to damage to the body of Christ. I mean, what is the law? Love God with your whole heart, et cetera, or love your neighbor as yourself. And so anytime that doesn't happen, whether it's, you know, murdering someone in an alley or judging your neighbor across the street 
for having too much junk on their porch. Um, both of those are infractions of, of that law. Um, if you make, if you make a, a daily or more habit of judging your neighbor across the street and despising your neighbor across the street for the junk on their porch, then I think you are in danger more than just passing by and saying, oh, what a mess. You know, so I mean, I think that a pastoral approach to that is very, very important. And in that context, there's not going to be an easy borderline to cross. Like, here's your mortal sin, or here's your venial sin, or here's your lesser sin, or here's your greater sin. I think that this is something that the the penitent needs to talk to herself about, and the um, confessor needs to think about as well. Now, originally, no, I don't know about it, but anyway, mortal sin in the Catholic Church meant that you would go to hell uh, without, if you had had a mortal sin on your soul without confession, that you would you would go to hell directly to hell. End of story. And so, for that reason, naming and clarifying exactly what is a mortal sin was important, so that people would say, "Oh, I missed mass last Sunday. I have to go to confession quickly." lest I get hit by a bus and end up in hell. And I'm not kidding about this. This is, this is the way it was taught. So I think a lot of the clarification or a lot of, a lot of the classification of mortal versus venial was for people to understand that and, you know, and, and figure out what they had to do to avoid eternal damnation. Well, we all agree that God is correct, and Adam's sin was the greatest of them all. You, <laughs> do we do we have anything else to say on chapter twenty nine? Um. So, and the reason why this is shown to Julian is that God God is basically saying, or the Lord is saying, "Look, Adam's sin is the greatest sin. I have redeemed and healed and forgiven that." And so because because I've done that with the greatest of sins, by extension, by as a side effect of that, everything that is a lesser sin is caught up in that. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can so, make well this massive thing, yeah, then how much more can I make well these smaller things? Yeah. If I can pay off my mortgage, I can probably handle a cup of coffee. Yes. There, there's my metaphor. Does Interesting that framing. <laughs> We're just refinancing our mortgage right now. Hey, before we plunge into chapter 30, I just want to give a little shout out to a little, uh, to someone on Twitter who is at Caroline Avenue, who sent uh, a little message to me saying that, uh, she, I'm assuming it's she, if it's Caroline Avenue, she's been listening and she's working on a, a film about Julian um, and has enjoyed listening to this. So maybe we'll have uh, Caroline Avenue on as a guest at some point. We She can tell us uh-huh. all about the film, but I don't know. So Caroline, thanks for the message uh, and uh, thanks for listening and good luck with the film. Drop me a line, tell me all about it and maybe we'll... Uh, 
we'll have a, a little collaboration between the four of us. I would love to hear more about the film. Yeah. So yeah, Caroline at Caroline Avenue right now, her, um, the, um, <laughs> corny on Maine <laughs> is what <laughs> Caroline Avenue is going by right now. Uh, <laughs> anyway, chapter, chapter 30. 30, the Lord gave her understanding in two parts. What are the two parts? Our savior and our salvation and the Lord's secret purpose. One of which we are supposed to gaze upon and inquire into, and the other, which we are supposed to hand over to God and join in the saints, join with the saints in letting God hold on to. All right, let's unpack it. By which I mean one of you two, unpack it. This first part, our Savior and our salvation. This first part, I think most of what she has talked about in the revelations up to this point, I think fall under this first part. The the plenteous bleeding. The, this, is, this is God's salvation, God's love made manifest to us in the person of Christ Jesus on the cross. Um, and she sees this as the, the substance of the church's faith, that this is what is taught inwardly by the Holy Spirit and outwardly by the Holy Church. And this is what we're, we're meant to be engaged in. Um, this is, this is the, the object when the curate, when the curate holds the crucifix in front of her face and says, behold, your savior, that is this first part is what we are supposed to turn our attention to and rejoice in because it is Christ rejoicing in us. This is the, this is the, the drama on the stage of salvation. The second part to use the stage metaphor is behind it's, it's off stage. It is what is lying behind this drama. Um, and it is God's ultimate plan. She talks towards the beginning about this, this great deed that God will do at the end and that we, we cannot fathom what that great deed will be. Um, this is, the, the secret purpose. Um, and it's, and it's in this secret purpose where the answer to how is everything made well lies. It's in this ineffable thing that God holds onto. She, she describes it as her, his Royal authority. Like it's, this is, um, it's not our business to know. It is not our business to know. Um, and we are indeed called to not want to know it. Um, although God in his pity and compassion understands that we can't let go of, often can't let go of this desire to know it. Um, it is this, it is the final denouement. The, the last act of the drama 
that that God has yet to reveal to us. Um, and it, from the sounds of it, she doesn't see this as even something that we will see once we have died and are in the beatific vision. The saints she describes as still not knowing this, that, that the saints are content to know nothing except what our Lord wishes to show them. Um, that this, this is truly, truly the final great act, the final secret. Um, and that part of what we are called to do as Christians is to discipline our desires so that we desire to know only what God shows us. Um, which I think implicitly requires us to let go of this question of, but how? But how will everything be okay? Part of, part of joining the saints in being content with what God shows us is letting go of this perceived need to know how it all works out and accept that God in God's royal authority holds the final card that will be played. I just like to read this small section that you were referring to, Jayan. Our Lord has pity and compassion on us because some creatures make themselves so busy about his secrets. And I am certain if we were aware of how much we would please him and ease ourselves by abandoning that, we would. And then, as you said, the saints that are in heaven wish to know nothing except what our Lord wishes to show them. And that, to me, is just an astonishing thing for her to say. And having been myself, someone who made myself so busy about his secrets in, in my lifetime, maybe even just as recently as this morning, um, it's just, it's, it's definitely, um, it's something that I, that I need to hear. I, I think I need to hear it. I think I need to hear it a lot. And we uh, we tend to value our reason. You know, we tend to value our intellect. The whole, we don't, you know, check our brains at the door kind of thing. That statement has always rubbed me the wrong way. But um, I know I've had times in my life when I even said to God, I need answers. And I don't even remember what I what my questions were, but sitting back and just waiting was enough. Not in not in the space of you know ten minutes or twenty minutes of silent prayer or anything like, but over over a span of time, it is enough because then, as she said, um, I was taught we should trust and rejoice only in our blessed Savior, Jesus, for everything. And the fact that you just turn yourself back to Jesus all the time for everything, no matter what, that that is, it doesn't sound like much of an answer, but it really, really is an answer. And, you know, and I I will also say that that was what very much drove me to 
become affiliated with the Order of Julian because that is that is their thing, 100%. That just simply turning around and, and facing Jesus, and that will be your answer. So, so these two halves, these two uh, understandings that the Lord gives to Julian, they, um, I was trying to sort them and categorize them in my mind to help me understand the distinction or the shared ground between the two. That's um, the... So in my mind, the first one is is a simple, adoring, contemplative gaze at Jesus, his whole life, but particularly the cross, just simply to see Jesus. Well, we're very good at glancing at Jesus and assuming we've got it all figured out, and then taking a little bit of what we need. We do this with people as well. We have fragments of relationships with people, and we assume that we understand them, and we take from them what we need, and then we go on about our lives. But it's a very different thing to actually let one's gaze and attention and concentration so dwell on somebody's life that you begin to see all the little details. Um, And this is, you know, the fruit of going through the liturgical year and through the lectionary cycle of hearing those same stories again and again, coming up with Christmas every year and Easter every year and epiphany every year. And, you know, the feast of the transfiguration every year, hearing the same stories, engaging with the same events in Jesus's life. And somehow having that experience that you've all, all of us have had, I know the two of you have had, where it's like, I've heard that story, I don't know how many times, but I never noticed this one thing, this one thing that Jesus does, the the pause, the word, the uh, implications of his tone of voice or something. I didn't notice that thing. And that just goes to show that like our our, our attention, our focus is always deepening. And so there's this, like this, this exhortation from the Lord to just do nothing but look at Jesus without trying to figure Jesus out. And that's the other half of it. The second half of the understanding is that some things you don't need to understand in order to benefit from it. Was it C.S. Lewis who had the whole thing about not understanding how vitamins work, but knowing that he needed them for his for his health. It sounds like Someone. something he would say, but it I don't does. know that. <laughs> yeah. uh, As Abraham Lincoln said. Uh, <laughs> I, um, Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alexander Hamilton. No, it's um, maybe I made it up just now and I'm very wise and brilliant. And now you understand an important thing in a new way, but, or like that experience that you've had of being sick and feeling unwell in your body, and then you wake up one morning and you feel good again. And you just, you know, you just know in your body that you're over whatever that was that you were sick with. You don't have to understand the mechanisms behind it. You don't need to know how white blood cells work and how your immune system response triggers this response that drives your, you know, that gives you a fever and all that other stuff. Like, 
you you just have moved from sickness into health without understanding it, without needing to. You just get to delight in the transformation back into health again. So it's this. Uh, I we maybe maybe it's gotten worse for us since the Enlightenment that we are so obsessed with figuring things out that we think that if we don't have them figured out, that they can't be true and that we can't benefit from them and that we can't uh, trust them. And maybe that's one reason that has caused both such a rise in skepticism and also a rise in societal anxiety. I mean, everyone that I know Certainly everyone that I know who's younger than me, everyone is depressed and anxious. Everyone is on depression meds, anxiety medication, everyone. It's certainly like under the age of 30, everyone that I know is crippled by it. And also, we live in this world where there's absolute, like, there's no trust, there's no resting, there's no, like God is saying, don't worry about how, just trust that it that I've, I've got you. And that, so we live in this world where nobody knows that there's a safety net and all God wants to do is say, I got you. It's, it's going to be okay. And so, you know, I think it's absolutely no surprise that as our ability to trust in that grace is going down, the anxiety and the depression are shooting up because we live in this world where we're like, everybody feels as though they are constantly in harm's way. Um, yeah. So Julian's uh, asked this question, like why God, why is this? And he's just saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you don't need to know mm-hmm. it's hidden. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so there's this whole thing in here about, yeah, this it's funny, right? The, um, people who make themselves so busy about his secrets. But what the saints do is they're satisfied with what God reveals. So is that mm, – is being satisfied with – is can we train ourselves to be satisfied with what God wants to show us? Yes. And, and increase in sanctity in that way? How do we yes. gain that skill? How do we practice that? I think it's turning our gaze back to Jesus. I, um, you, you know, like with, with contemplative prayer or any sort of meditation practice, there's, you, you struggle to kind of maintain focus and it's not any sort of breakthrough that suddenly you're able to focus on your prayer word or whatever whatever kind of focal point there is in in your practice it's it's something that you grow in over time you you wander and then you turn your gaze back you wander and then you turn your gaze back and and we're only able to turn our gaze back because of the grace of god but as we as we cooperate with that and continue turning our gaze back to Christ over and over, after we 
after our gaze wanders from Christ over and over, then gradually we we grow into that. Gradually we that becomes that becomes a habit. Um and I think um as we as we notice ourselves as we notice our our minds and souls moving into the the why god space we turn it back to look at the the mystery of christ's passion um and it's it's something we repeat over and over and over and over ad nauseum um but lord willing we we grow in that and every Every time we wander away, maybe maybe we catch ourselves a little faster and say, yeah, God, turn me back. Um, and very gradually, I think, over the course of our lives with God, if we are intentional about cooperating with God's grace in this way, we can grow in abiding in that place of looking at Christ. Marguerite, anything? I think it's it's true that the intentional returning to to God, returning to prayer, returning to to Jesus during still prayer is an important exercise and something that does show does show up over time. I think it goes beyond the actual prayer time though. I think it goes into your actual entire life. Absolutely. So that you're walking down the street and you see something and you see it with Jesus. I mean, whatever it happens to be, it might be some little kid on a tricycle. It might be anything. It might be a, you know, a bird flying from a branch to the ground but you're able to you're able to see that you're able to see that with Jesus and then you hear somebody say something and you you hear that with Jesus and then you look into somebody's face and you're looking into the face of Jesus with Jesus mm-hmm. and that's that's what that does and maybe that evening when you're sitting and doing your your silent prayer you're distracted again. Well, that's fine because you're just going to turn right back again. And that's just, that's just making, making you be that person that Jesus wants you to be. I was in a a parish discussion once about uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, and we'd covered all the bits about how Paul talks about how it is the spirit within us interceding when we don't know what to pray and a little bit later on where paul says you've got to put on the lord jesus christ like you're donning a cloak or something and so somebody in our group said wait so it's like god inside you praying to god outside you meanwhile you're looking like god and i said exactly exactly (laughs) but so am i just along for the ride i said pretty much 
Yeah. Um, I love the way that chapter 31 begins. I am able to make everything well, and I know how to make everything well, and I wish how to make everything well, and I shall make everything well, and thou shalt see for thyself that all manner of things shall be well. I mean, put that on a sign and put that in your front yard. I'd I'd vote for that candidate. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you all make of her Trinitarian kind of take on this? <sighs> oh yeah. So uh, yeah. So this for those of you who don't have the book in front of you, where he says I am able, I understand is referring to the Father, and when he says I know how, I understand is referring to the Son, and where he says I wish to, I understand is referring to the Holy Spirit. And where he says, I shall, I understand, is referring to the unity of the Blessed Trinity. So is that that's specifically what you're asking about? Like, Yeah. I, I the guess, assignment of those verbs to parts of the Trinity? Yeah. One, I mostly, what is she doing there? What do you <laughs> see her as doing there? Because I don't, I don't know that I'm necessarily seeing her as locating ability with the father and knowledge with the son, but what is she trying to accomplish in that, that bit? I have a theory. Marguerite, do you? I I want to hear your theory, Chris. My theory is that it's possible that she's just sorting things into threes because she does that all over the place. The other theory is that it is possible that she is very subtly assigning not a kind of modalism to the Trinity, but, but an understanding of the purpose or the role of each of the persons of the Trinity in terms of their apparent function. So this is that kind of classical distinction in theology between, between the imminent Trinity, the, like the notion of the Trinity in terms of its relationships one to the other, like how God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit relate to each other, and the economic trinity being the ways in which creation experiences the trinity as uh, as distinct relationships. So creation is a slightly different stance to the Father than it does to the Son, than it does to the Holy Spirit, just because creation is historical, and we have these encounters with what appear to be different things at different times. So, I am able, I know how, and I wish to, seem to be, uh, you know, I am able speaks to the raw source of potentiality that is the Father. Everything that exists, exists because God permits it. And so all ability that like the very notion of ability itself is grounded in the creative work of God, the father, I know how, um, and this is where like this theory began because I know how this kind of knowledge is linked in my mind to the, the logos in Greek philosophy, this notion of, of like the, the rational ordering of things that is what logos means. And as we know from the beginning of John's gospel, the son of God is 
the logos is this, that association is made. Um, and then I shall um, is linked to this aspect of the Holy Spirit as being the expressive will of, of the Trinity, like the, the dynamic force that is bringing the, the will of God to be manifest in creation. Um, it's also probably related a little bit to the Augustinian notion of the relationship between the Trinity and the psychology of people. This was his analogy that he made in the Confessions, maybe? The I don't know where. I think. Okay, yeah. Of the uh, the reason and the memory and the will, and how the human psyche is composed of these three aspects, our ability to think, to cogitate, to think rationally, and to remember things and put together historical associations, and then to will things, to decide... I am going to do this and then to have our bodies and our voices and our um, willpower <laughs> follow through on something. And that it, so Augustine saw this as being a way to understand the Trinity as well. And these kind of three separate but related aspects. So I guess those are my three theories. The first theory being that just that she, um, wanted she saw three and just jumped on it. It's got to be the Trinity because it's three things. So I don't know. So that's that's uh, that's my take. I can see that. Sounds good. Then she gets into this thirst, the spiritual thirst of Christ, mm-hmm. which I. The love longing. I love that word or compound word, the love longing that lasts and ever shall until we see that sight. So Christ is longing to possess us altogether wholly. And that is not realized yet. So what does that mean for that to not be realized yet is that is this just is this just another the 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 kind of eschatological understanding of already but not yet that we are already in christ but not yet one to him that's kind of how i see it jan um it's it, this was a this was a tough passage for me. I I struggled with it because of that because so much of me sees God as unchanging and full and complete and not in need of anything. And she is describing she's describing Jesus as our head as not fully glorified nor all beyond suffering so that Jesus is still needing us still suffering. It goes back to that. It goes back to that Colossians one twenty four, the the making up for what is lacking in Christ's suffering for his body. Right. 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 It's, it's a, 
it's it's something that I that I struggle with. It's something that that you know that I that I think about a lot, and I try and figure it out. And I certainly have not figured it out. I mean, on one hand, I know that God has all of eternity in His view, and 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 Jesus is God, and the whole Trinity is God, and so it's not like. It's not like Jesus is saying, will this ever happen? I mean, he doesn't have questions as it Mm -hmm. were, and he doesn't have, um, you know, he's not, he's not looking for answers. He's not trying to figure things out. He's not, he, he isn't doubtful about how things are going to end up. The outcome isn't uncertain. Exactly. But it hasn't, it hasn't happened yet. And so he both longs for us with this love longing and this thirst and this continual suffering because we're not all there yet. But yet he also is full of joy and happiness in us because he knows that we will all be there. So that's as, that's as, that's as much as I can do with that. I think. Chris, you looked like you were looking something up. I just have a different um, translation of the showings, and I wanted to see if love longing was in that one, and it just says the longing of love, which I think is less poetic than love longing. So that raises the question, does God suffer? Because we are not yet as we should be. Is God changeable and perfect? These are two different things, I think. Um, Because if God is perfectly self-sufficient, in other words, has no need of anything beyond God's self, then can God really be said to love the creation? Can you love and also be entirely self-sufficient? Or does love require a certain dependency? Well, I would say that God created the world because he wanted that that emptiness in himself to then be fulfilled. So 20th century, like psychoanalysis, as far as I have read, is incapable of thinking about desire in any terms other than lack. That, yeah. that desire inherently means that something is lacking. Um, I think that that's a mistake. Um, I, I think you can desire something without that desire coming out of a place of lack. Um, and I think that is the kind of desire that God has for us. Um, it is it is not a desire because he needs us. He is not in any way dependent on us, but and so. 
the creation I see less about as being less about filling some gap in God and more about being an overflowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if creation, if, if all that is comes out of an overflowing, um, I think we can see that the, that God's desire for us as being somehow a further expression of that overflowing. Um, and I, I don't have the, the philosophical chops to work out a detailed philosophical argument as to how this is. Um, but I think that God can be entirely self-sufficient and still have desire for us, still have eros for us, still have an erotic relationship with us. Um, that, that doesn't detract from his self-sufficiency. And I think that's what that's what Julian's describing in this thirst. That that God is the height of bliss. Christ, concerning the Godhead, Christ is himself the highest bliss. So in his very being, he is already the fullness of bliss. There is there's no bliss lacking in him. And yet there is a description of a longing to bring us into that fullness. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how I would, I would lay it out in philosophical terms. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are philosophers and theologians who have vocabulary, a vocabulary apparatus that would help us kind of phrase this all and, Mm-hmm. Aquinas but, does, yeah, yeah. Of course, of, of course. course, Aquinas does. <laughs> Six volumes on it. But I think this <laughs> this idea of a a desire that does not come out of lack is important for us to understand the God of the Bible and understand the kind of love we're called into. Is it? Weird. Are we anthropomorphizing God by ascribing emotions to God? The same way that we do with with animals, right? Like we we see animals behave a certain way, and so we think that they must feel emotions or be thinking the same sorts of things that we would think in that same circumstance and exhibiting that same set of behaviors. And that's anthropomorphizing. Uh, we do we do with inanimate objects as well, but we really do it with our pets. Uh, I know you do it with Granger, <laughs> <laughs> but is it right to talk about God feeling joy or bliss or suffering for that matter? I mean, I know Julian does it; everyone does it. Um, but do you think God? feels emotions can we even answer that question i i'm i'm gonna sidestep that 
Um, and <laughs> I think, well, not entirely sidestep it. I think um, as long as we are recognizing the um, the direction of the metaphor or the the direction of the reference, it's okay to use that language. And and what I mean that that the the fundamental locus of reality is not our feelings that we're then ascribing to God, but that our feelings derive their reality from God. That that what we experience as longing, it, it, it it's it's not like our longing is the reality of longing that we then kind of say, does God participate in that? I think it's it's the other way around that our longing is a way of participating in this love longing. I feel like I probably just strayed into heresy, but it has been logged and entered into your permanent record. So we're, um, we're coming close to the end of our normally scheduled time. How do we, do we have extra things to say about chapter 31? And I think the, the, uh, towards the end, Julian kind of turns the, the frame onto us and what we're called to do, which is to yearn also for Christ. And I think about this, um, this bit from the oblate rule for the order of Julian that, um, that we're called into an ever-deepening understanding of Christ's love for us and a life lived in response to that love. That there is, there is both this deep awareness of Christ's longing for us and that that, that, that is meant, we are called into a certain response to that, which is a mutual longing for Christ. Um, that that is what I think this is supposed to elicit, that, that everything that Christ is showing Julian here is, is meant to elicit in her a mutual longing for God. And that that is what we are called to grow into. Chris? Yes. You want me to wrap something final up? Thoughts? Well, do you have any final thoughts? Um, I guess I don't know that I do. I am able to make everything well, and I know how to make everything well, and I wish to make everything well. And I shall make everything well. And thou shalt see for thyself that all manner of things shall be well. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. 
You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.